It seems that one of the most used words so far in 2021 has been bubble, and that tends to conjure thoughts of the medieval tulip mania and the 1999 to 2000 tech run. However, what I want to start with are the basics, since it seems that no one ever really asks the simple question, what really defines a bubble? And here to help us answer this question is Jason Ritchie, Portfolio Manager at Cougar Global Investments. This is Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. I'm your host, Matt Orton. Join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional episodes and insights. Thanks for joining us today, Jason. Yeah, hi, Matt. Great to speak with you today. Really appreciate the invite. No, of course. And so let, let's start with the basics. So what would you define as a bubble? Yeah, look, in terms of bubble, I think the beauty of, of using the word bubble for us in the financial world is that we tend to use it as a crutch for something that doesn't make sense, or, or it's an easy way to explain away the essentially unexplainable. And that's really because we have 100 years of very robust market data measured in a 1000 different ways. And so when a security or an asset class doesn't act the way that it should, or, or you can't justify it in any fashion whatsoever, it's fairly easy to chalk the entire situation up as a bubble. Now, in terms of resources, there are a number of books on bubbles in finance. One of the most recent is titled Boom and Bust, and that was published last summer. It was written by a pair of academics, and, and they take us all the way back to the 1700s, and they walk through a series of bubbles, and, and they argue that the word bubble going back uh, to the 1700s, was used as a verb, uh, and it meant to deceive. They also try to explain how to spot bubbles, and they argue that financial bubbles come from two sources, either technological innovation or government policy. And I think it's fair to argue that both of those categories can fit the environment today. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's an interesting point you brought up about the way they can be brought about. And just like you said, given the environment we're in with really unprecedented fiscal spending, a tremendous amount of technological innovation, would you say that the market, broadly speaking, qualifies as a bubble? Well, so let's look at both of those categories the two academics referenced. First, uh, technological innovation, that immediately makes me think of, of Bitcoin or digital currencies, or, or perhaps the ease of, of data and information flow driving these one or two days worth of, of market action that we've been seeing lately in certain meme stocks. And the other category is government policy, which you know we spend quite a bit of time on here, and it's impossible to overlook either monetary or fiscal policy and just consider where we are at this moment in time. We have the potential for likely higher than 6% GDP growth in calendar 2021, which we haven't seen those types of numbers since the early 80s. And we also simultaneously have a Fed buying $120 billion worth of bonds every month to theoretically support capital markets. On the fiscal side of the coin, we have a 20% savings rate, which amounts to more than a trillion waiting to be spent by consumers. And the bottom line is that when there's an ample amount of money available, which is certainly the case today, that money will find a, a way to create mischief and the potential for financial instability. So yes, if you're investing based on valuations or, or earnings potential, there are certainly signs of bubbles. 
But the interesting element to me is whether or not we would even see another one of the broader classic 2000 to 2002 type two and a half year 80% drawdown that we saw back then out of tech stocks. Or if based on our experience last March and even going back to the 2008 crisis, if government officials just simply throw a bunch of money and soothing words at various markets, maybe any 30% or or potential 40% loss would immediately turn into a 10% loss or perhaps break even. So then I think the question is a bit more philosophical in nature. And that and that would be, would that even count as a bubble if the whole round trip takes place in, in a couple of months or, or something less rather than two years? Right. And I think that's a very important distinction to make because, you know, there might be shades of, uh, of correlation between past bubbles, but, but the drivers and the way they act is very, very different. And, and you had referenced, you know, different pockets of the market potentially, you know, maybe looking like a bubble. So the obvious first place to start then is what we've seen happening from the Reddit trade or or the Reddit rebellion, as a lot of people call it. You know, many of the names were up thousands of percent and a lot of them have crashed already, but we're still seeing some unusual activity take place in certain stocks in the market. If these are a bubble, maybe you can comment on that. But what do you think are the risks of these sorts of trades to the broader market? Or do you think that it really is just truly one-off events that will not have meaningful implications for the market as a whole? Yeah, you know, I think it helps explain why the VIX, why the volatility index, it seems stuck above 20. It's been there for a while. And that index also, at least lately, seems to spike fairly quickly on what aren't very large moves in the equity market. So to me, that's a sign of a jittery market that can't quite put its finger on why it's so jittery. But I think you're right. It it seems to be a a sort of rolling blip through a name or two at a time. So I think it's easy enough to call the Reddit factor itself a a one-off. Now, from a market structure or, or behavioral point of view, one of the big implications involves the hedge fund industry and how how it approaches risk. You saw a couple of notable short sellers disengage from the industry. Now, I don't think short selling as a whole goes away, but hedge funds have immediately changed their models to account for, for that potential momentum of social media on any given single name. You know, there there have been a few high-paying chief sentiment trader positions I've seen whose job, I suppose, is to monitor some of these online forums. I doubt there's a huge movement towards taking on a a lot of additional labor cost in this environment, but it's clear at at a minimum risk models are being updated. So, you know, I'm not ready to use the Reddit argument as the entire reason for for financial instability, but I'm very willing to throw it into the larger bucket of of sources of potential risk or sources of, of potential instability that we need to pay attention to. Extending from that, what about some of the these other areas of the market that have been impacted, I would say, either alongside the Reddit trade or, or share a, a similar, I would argue, speculative nature to the rises that they've had? Call it uh, Bitcoin, for example, or some of the cryptocurrencies like Dogecoin that seemingly just go up for really no reason at all. Yeah, you know, I think there's plenty of easy targets. Uh, everybody else picks on celebrity SPACs. I don't have to, you know, we're more than on pace for a record year of issuance, of SPAC issuance, that is. I I do think it's interesting that there's a rap song about SPACs that made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I just find that interesting. I I think you could pick on municipals, uh, like the city of Detroit issuing bonds, it's 20 times oversubscribed. But at the same time, every investor is chasing yields. That actually makes some sense to me, Uh, you know, especially when you consider the ever-present Fed 
standing behind you as, as an investor. But, you know, I'm going to go a different route in topics important to us, which is, a, is first a bubble in Fed following. Now, I don't, I don't know how much more analysis you can do when you get to the point where you're analyzing the various adjectives the Fed chair uses, either in his press conferences, his speeches, or, or any of his formal statements. So they are market moving if you're a very short-term trader. I understand it. But I think the bigger point is just how involved the government is today. And, and I don't know that they ever wanted to be in this position. I don't know how we're going to get out of it. But that's sort of the reality of where we're at. It's hard to do, but if you're investing in anything longer than, a, let's say, a five-day time frame, just try to be careful not to get sucked into the endless reams of, of Fed analysis and do your best to see the forest through the trees and, and try to stay on top of the larger trends taking place. And, and the second bubble, at least in our space, that's important to us is all of the new ETFs. So I read an interesting academic paper. It, uh, it tried to explain the pace and the amount of ETF closures taking place the past year or two. And there's some correlation with performance, as you would expect. But what the paper found was actually the rise in thematic investing and the launch of thematic ETFs. That can work for a year or two in the very short term, but it doesn't last very long, leading to some of these closures. So remember, it wasn't that long ago. It's less than 10 years, really, that there were still plenty of questions about the direction of, of the ETF industry overall. And now today, you have a situation where the marketplace is almost overly competitive, I'd argue, especially in the U.S., given that ETFs are launched and then closed after, after just a year or two. So just be careful with some of the thematic ETFs. Again, depending on your own investment style, they can work great for a while, but they can experience drawdowns and outflows and, and certainly be impacted by social media. So I want to dig into that thematic ETF topic just a little bit, because I think some of the thematic ETFs have been poster children for, for the runs and some of the spectacular, I'll call them bubblicious type companies. Ground zero might be the, the ARC uh, group of ETFs, where, where they're focused on different innovators. Back to that tech innovation theme you were talking about. But I think what gets ignored sometimes is the impact of these ETFs on broader indices as well. So maybe you can share some thoughts on uh, on the potential impact of these ETFs as they get strong inflows to impact the market. And then I'll probably have a follow-up question from there. Yeah, the, the, the ETF, so again, with the ETF market maturing the way that it is, I would argue it's overall a good thing. You just have to be cautious, again, in some of these thematic ETFs because it's hard to get the size needed to make these things very profitable at these low expense ratios, which is fabulous for investors. But for example, one of the vehicles that we pay attention to is the Bitcoin vehicle. And in Canada, we've launched a couple of Bitcoin ETFs to get back to your point about, about Bitcoins. Now, we, haven't, we still don't have an ETF available in the US quite, quite yet. I'm assuming that that'll happen eventually. And again, that'll probably get a lot more interesting to us because it'll mean that, that crypto is an asset class, or, or I suppose you can label it as an asset class because it's available to a much broader audience. But you know, in terms of, of market dynamics, you know, if you looked at the individual companies now holding Bitcoin uh, in, in lieu of cash on their balance sheets or, or payment processors, or eventually everyday wealth managers like us having access... I think that means the Bitcoin or crypto has staying powers. I realize I'm referencing a very specific slice of the market. So this is where some of those ETF, uh, those niche ETFs may work. It's not the case for all of them, but I think it, specific to Bitcoin, regulation is always the question. Uh, I think some regulation could actually be a good thing. And my guess is if, 
if we had acceptable rules of the road, that would take away some from some of the volatility of Bitcoin. Moving even beyond Bitcoin and the impact of some of these ETFs, you know, I look at the small cap and really especially the micro cap space as being potentially influenced by flows into some of the thematic ETFs. And micro caps especially have been on an absolute tear, I'll call it since Pfizer Day in early November. And maybe you can comment a little bit on the massive run that microcaps have have been on and whether or not you think this is a potential risk for the market. Because to me, the run of low quality, smallest of the small companies, you know, reeks to your point of a market awash in liquidity and perhaps some misplaced speculation. Yeah, we called it vaccine weeks here because it was not only Pfizer, but it was successive weeks. It felt like November was... Which is why November was such a great month and ended up being the you know a record month for small caps, to your point. And it's a great topic, particularly relevant to us and something we've been debating for a while. And I'll just throw it into the small cap versus large cap buckets. Now, we've been using small caps as a whole as an indicator of a broader recovery and bullish sentiment for exactly the reasons you mentioned. It, it's now, to be fair, it's always been the case that small caps and especially micro caps, a significant portion of those companies have no earnings or poor earnings from a quality perspective. So that element is not unusual in and of itself. But the reason it's drawing so much attention now is because of the bounce that we've seen in the past few months, especially, you know, when you consider we had the best month and we had the best quarter in the history of the Russell 2000 index in the fourth quarter of 2020. Now, you know, once you get that type of performance, I think all eyes shift to immediately explaining it and then justifying it, which is which is why I think you see such a focus on their earnings or actually the lack thereof. Now, again, it's all roads lead to the Fed, so it points to a very supportive Fed, which if you have, you know, access to capital, then that buys these smaller companies time to start eventually, you know, generating profit down the road because they don't need it to pay the immediate bills now. And so I, you know, I, I recognize that small caps have been on, on a run lately, but large caps have been winning for a long time now. And you, you, have to go back to, you have to go back five years to 2016 to see the last time that small caps outperformed large caps. So I'm less worried about small cap performance in the bigger context. But although you know, I spent a lot of time on small caps, I agree with your thesis. If you're, if you're picking individual names, be very careful in this space, especially in the micro cap space. That, you know, that space is not my cup of tea. But, you know, we're not trying to pick any individual securities, so we get the natural diversification of the entire basket. But in general, if you recognize that the U.S. is ahead of much of the world in the vaccine race and recovery, then the more domestically focused smaller cap names make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's some great context to bear in mind. So I guess, you know, we'll say small caps, even though they're up 122% from the bottom on March 23rd through the end of February and in the Russell Microcap Index 150% just about you know well you know maybe shades of bubbles in certain areas but um, but it makes sense in the greater context of of what's happening maybe one other area we can transition to is is looking at what we're seeing in in the debt markets as well and there's been a surge in demand over the past 6 months for for I'll call it much more speculative debt lending to triple c and below companies what do you think about that or do, are you concerned about any of that right now yeah on, again on the face of the argument yes there's concern and the example I'll use is is any time that you have a newspaper company you know, get the opportunity to refinance a loan at under 8%, it 
and save more than 350 basis points of interest cost because their old loan used to be 11.5%. I think that should give you an indication of the amount of capital that's available right now. But again, if you, if you think the Fed will always have your back, then a yield reach isn't all that bad. I mean, investors have been reaching for, for yield for a decade, and that strategy has, has largely paid off. The high yield um, index, you know, the corporate index has provided double the annualized return of the Barclays Aggregate Index over the past 10 years. So there's no question there's been hiccups along the way, but the strategy of relying on the Fed hasn't, hasn't been a bad one. Now, again, in the high yield space itself, it seems every couple of years we talk about refinancing cliffs, but the financing always seems to be there. And as we saw in March 2020, it's always very easy for monetary policy to step in as necessary. But Matt, microcaps, uh, triple Cs. I think you're you're talking about some of the I'll call them less than mainstream asset classes, which are often by themselves in either boom or bust mode, just depending on where the economy is at. So now we'll have to see whether credit spreads themselves are decent indicators because spreads have been very quiescent for for months at this point. So they're not they're not indicating trouble ahead. Now, if you see those credit spreads pick up, then my guess is they'll probably move very quickly. So I don't know if you'll have time to get out of the way, but but watching credit spreads, especially at the lower end, is something that most macro investors monitor as an indicator in today's world. Yeah, and so I guess maybe the next question is, is when you look at what's been happening in the market, especially based on, on the past month or so of gradually, and in some cases, sharply rising rates, what, what happens if, if it's clear that economic growth is in fact accelerating? It's far ahead of what, we're, what we were expecting, and, and there might be whiffs of inflation coming. What happens to a lot of these trades? Well, okay. So given the amount of stimulus that's either already in the pipeline or likely to come, my guess is I don't think we're going to see weaker economic growth, at least in the US. But you know, if we do see weaker growth or if we got another surprise on the variant front, I think the simple solution is that we, we just get more stimulus, which is the beauty of having the reserve currency. So I don't think weaker growth is much of a risk, but we certainly could see stronger inflation which in theory, uh, you know, that would be as a result of, of strong growth, which should be good overall. Now, if we see higher rates and we see higher inflation, then those growthier names that lack those current profits would struggle. And we've seen that already happening in the market recently, to your point. Now, many would argue that the run that we've seen in Bitcoin or crypto has been a result of a declining dollar or perhaps the availability of money. So I think you'd probably see those go higher as they have been, X, again, any bombshell regulation that comes out. But if you dig into the calculation of inflation, the last time that we saw core inflation above 3% was 1995. I think a little inflation would be more than welcome at this point. That's certainly the Fed stance. Now, we've seen asset price inflation without question, but based on the purely economic definition of inflation, we just haven't seen it. Now, that causes its own problems if financial assets inflate, but the real economy doesn't. But that's, that's really just a limitation of monetary policy almost by nature. Absolutely. And, and so, Jason, I, I kind of want to take everything home and wrap things up as neatly as we possibly can. And so we've talked about what constitutes a bubble, different areas of the market that, that look like they could be in a bubble and reasons potentially for that. But one question that I think most of our listeners want to know is, you know, given where we are in the market, how do you prudently or, or properly invest in this sort of market environment? Which is the million-dollar question, right? That's the interesting question. So if you have a financial plan, if you have a longer-term time frame, then I think the usefulness of, of recognizing and identifying potential bubbles is mostly a, a psychological exercise, which I think it gets to the heart of your question, which is 
What do you do as an investor since I think we can reasonably identify various bubbles, but we can never really know the timing of when the bubble may pop. And, and I think the simple act of merely recognizing the potential for a bubble, at least from a psychological point of view, that can prepare you to stick to your plan if and when that bubble bursts. Now, whether that plan is to be prepared to buy more of a particular asset class after a predetermined drop, you know, whether that's rebalancing more frequently, or even if that plan is doing nothing and just refusing to log into your accounts and check your balances, if you have a plan, and more importantly, if you have confidence in your plan, then I think not only are you becoming a more alert investor, I think you're in a much better place to, to act and invest wisely. Now, on a lighter note, the only caution I'd have is that if you start if you start identifying bubbles and you try to avoid them, then you run the risk of being called a party pooper, which I get labeled that every once in a while. But the bright side is you probably won't end up at some future congressional hearing, which, you know, to me, I personally consider that a good thing. Well, I think that is excellent advice. Have a plan. It sounds simple enough, but probably some of the least heated investment advice around. And Jason, I really appreciate your time. This has been a great discussion. Thank you to our listeners and take care. Thanks for listening to Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. Please find additional episodes and market insights at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Matt Orton. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Carillon Tower Advisors. Please visit marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from Carillon Tower Advisors or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.